I'd like to ask you this morning, if you would, I would like to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in a lot of different passages today, so the Bible app will be your friend. We're going to read a lot of scripture today, uh, probably four or five times. I'll have you change the page, but we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 14 in a couple minutes. And this is Communion Sunday, so if you're at home, we hope you have your bread and your cup ready to join us in that way. It's the second Sunday of a thing called Advent, the Christmas season. You know, uh, (laughs) Ralphie, when I say that word, some of you immediately know who I'm talking about. Some of you are like, I don't know, who's Ralphie? And if I say, his quest for a Red Rider BB gun. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I know the Ralphie that you're talking about there, right? And some of you are still like, um, I think I know who you mean, but if I say, you'll shoot your eye out, then you know exactly who I'm talking about. It's a Ralphie in the Christmas story. That has become a favorite Christmas special that people watch, a Christmas story, with a little boy who wants the BB gun and is on his quest to get it back in the 1940s. Our family watched it every year, especially when our kids were small. It's really, really popular, and I think the reason it's popular, one of the reasons, is it kind of portrays the universal pressure that the Christmas season can bring from the perspective of a little boy, from the perspective of a little boy whose whose Christmas seems to contain nothing more than the stress and the expectation of disappointment, of wanting something and not being able to get it. You know the story. You know his teacher. Anybody know what his teacher's name was? Miss Shields. Yeah, go figure that out, right? So there's Miss Shields, his teacher, who doesn't give him the A plus on a theme he anticipates, but gives him a C or C minus or something like that. And then she writes at the bottom of it, P.S., you'll shoot your eye out. I just want the BB gun. And then there's Santa who, you know, he forgets to tell Santa what he wants. And Santa, at the last minute, he says, I want a BB gun, Red Rider BB gun. And Santa just takes that, that jolly old elf, just takes his boot and taps him on his forehead and pushes him down that slide and says, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. And then there's Aunt Clara who continues to labor under the delusion that he is a four-year-old and a girl and gives him the pink bunny costume, right? Really, whatever you want to say about Ralphie, you have to say that his Christmas was not marked by peace. But do you remember the closing scene? Do you remember how that ends? Just before the credits roll, Ralphie's in his bed, and in the bed next to him is his little brother Randy. They're sleeping. And grown-up Ralphie says, next to me in the blackness lay my old, oiled, let me start over, next to me in the blackness lay my oiled blue steel beauty the greatest Christmas gift I ever received or would ever receive. Gradually, I drifted off to sleep, pranging ducks on the wing and getting off spectacular hip shots. And you feel good. When that's all over, you you feel pretty good. I mean, despite all the stress of that Christmas season, getting bullied by Scott Farkas and getting his mouth washed out for soap and Having the bumpus dogs eat their Christmas turkey, it still ended peacefully. And isn't that picture of him in bed sleeping, isn't that kind of what a lot of us long for? That we could have that kind of peace that would let us sleep well, a peace that lets you just get along in life well. 
A piece that says words like this, that Christmas would live in our memories as a Christmas when we were introduced to Chinese turkey. And do you remember the next line? And all was right with the world. On this communion Sunday, we have lighted our second Advent candle. And in this Advent series, our second candle stands for peace. You may be thinking, wait, that's not what they stand for. But you know, no one knows what they stand for. It makes my wife crazy that I rename them every year. She says, you can't do that, but I can, and I do, every year. So last week it was about hope. This week it's about, it's about peace. And that word peace is used in conjunction with Jesus over and over again. If your Bible is open to Ephesians 2, we're going to read just four verses, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. And it's speaking about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Peace. It's a pretty big deal in the kingdom. And yet, peace is probably something that even longtime Christians sometimes struggle to find. In fact, if I were to be honest with you, I would say to you that during the past several weeks and months, I have lost count of the number of people who say, I am completely disillusioned, particularly with my own friends, particularly with some of my Christian friends. And I just don't have peace. They must feel a little bit like Bob Dylan, who in 1979 released an album called Slow Train Coming. He began the title track on that album with the words, sometimes I feel so low down and disgusted I can't help but wonder what's happening to my companions. I don't have any peace. I struggle to have peace when I see what's happening, not just in our world, but in the circles in which I move. Now, I want to today give you some very practical counsel on how how to get out of that. I want to today give you some, some tools to use to get you away from that struggle you have for peace, to give you peace. But if I'm going to do that, we probably need to address a couple misconceptions about peace. The first one would be something like this. Peace comes by avoiding conflicts. Now, most of us hate conflict. You hear someone say, I hate conflict. And don't you want to look at them and say, well, so do I. Uh, There are people who love conflict. We kind of stay away from those people. but, But most of us, we don't like conflict. We feel like conflict is the opposite of peace. But it is not. Honestly, the presence of conflict does not mean the absence of peace. And I say that because of just some biblical realities. The Prince of Peace actually embraced conflict. Jesus did. He wasn't afraid of it. In Matthew 10, he let us know that his very presence doesn't bring peace, but would cause conflict. And he did create conflict regarding things like the Sabbath, regarding things like the law of Moses, even his own identity, 
brought about conflict. He found himself in conflict with his brothers at one time who didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. And even at one point, he apparently found himself in conflict with his own mother because she and his brothers in the Gospel of Mark, quote, come to take charge of him because they think something's wrong with him. And yet, in these conflicts, he never takes off the banner that says Prince of Peace. He never takes off the the little tag here or the hat that says Prince of Peace. How is that possible? Here's how. Peace is not the absence of conflict. And you will not, you cannot find peace by running away from those with whom you might have a disagreement. That would be fake peace. It would be counterfeit peace. This is because peace doesn't come from being the same. That's another misconception people have about peace, that if we're just the same, then we'll be at peace. I was talking to the worship team about this at the, as they were practicing getting ready to, to uh, serve you this morning. Uh, my wife and I are probably as different as any couple you've ever met. We actually won a contest on who is the most different from one another. We were attending this marriage retreat together and the speakers were giving away a stack of books on the table beside them. And they said, get out a piece of paper and a pen and list all the ways you and your spouse are opposites. And whoever has the longest list wins that stack. And I can remember I'm sitting there in my seat listening to him. And I just looked over at Laurel and she looked over at me. And we both just kind of nodded like, we got those books for sure. And we did. I mean, we didn't even, we didn't just win the contest. We annihilated the contestants. I mean, our list was so long that one, one couple said, you guys cheated. Let me see that list. Like we're cheating to get books about how to have a better marriage. We don't do that, right? No one can be that different, they said. Laurel and I are. Our marriage has kind of gone through a sort of cycle. You know, at first, when we were young, when we first met, we loved those differences. I mean, oh, he's so different. He's different than any man I ever met. She's so different. There's something alluring about her, how different she is. And, and, and we, we, that kind of piqued our interest in one another. But after a few years of marriage, we both grew frustrated with those differences, even dismayed. God, why would you put two people who are so complete polar opposites in the same marriage? Both of us cried out to God with that tone and that kind of language. But listen, as we have matured, we have come to value those differences. I value my wife's quiet, gentle spirit, and she values my outgoing nature. I value my wife's attention to detail, and I love it that she's distressed that I've renamed the candles. (laughs) And she values my big picture perspective and how I can see things from kind of a distance. I value Laurel's interest in antiques and loving old things. And she values my ability to fix her phone and her computer and her sewing machine all in the same day. You know? The differences make us who we are and they complete us as a couple. Peace. It is not founded in being the same especially for Christians. Did you hear me? Christians do not have to be the same to be at peace. Theologian D.A. Carson words it very well when he says this. I'm going to read a half a dozen sentences from him. Listen as I read this. The church itself 
is not made up of natural, quote, friends. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, do you think that Carson is overstating it when he says you and I are a band of natural enemies? Say for the most part, in our unredeemed state, in our sinful nature, humans have a tendency to have an every man for himself mentality. But in our common allegiance and obedience to Christ, we find peace. Peace is not a matter of sharing the same outlook. Peace is not a matter of sharing the same interests. Peace is not a matter of voting the same way. Peace is not a matter of wearing the same kind of clothing. Peace is not a matter of liking the same music. I have friends that hate the Beatles. I don't understand them, but I still have peace with them. Any demand that says otherwise is not in alignment with the Prince of Peace, but in alignment with the Prince of Darkness, who wants nothing to do with peace and wants everything to do with division. Peace is about obeying the Prince of Peace. And actually, peace comes from the Prince of Peace. If you'd like to, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in half a dozen passages before the day's out. Romans 5 is where we'll be in a couple minutes. The Bible actually tells us that the Prince brought peace in his advent, through his advent. On the 4th of July, we often go down to Kerwinsville Lake, and we see the fireworks show they put off there. It's fantastic. But the fireworks on the 4th of July at Kerwinsville Lake do not bring us freedom from King George of England. They celebrate the freedom that was purchased by those who fought in the revolution. But the fireworks do not bring the freedom. It was a revolution that brought the freedom. And Christmas does not bring us the peace. Christmas, Advent, reminds us of a real life, real time, real event, real birth of the Prince of Peace. Think about the things churches do, that we do, every Advent. Children's Christmas program. Man, I'd love to have had one of those this year. Look at the kids we got in this church. That would have been so cool. Lighting the Advent wreath in the sanctuary. A lot of you are at home. Do you have an Advent wreath? We have one here. It's something we do every Christmas. Being in church with family and friends on Christmas Eve. By the way, your worship team is putting together a Christmas Eve service that will be premiered on YouTube and Facebook at 7 o'clock on Christmas Eve. You'll want to reserve that time to join us live for that event. It won't be a live event, but it'll be a premiere, so it'll feel like a live event. We do this Christmas Eve service where we dim the lights in here and and then we turn them off all together and Pastor Steve plays his guitar and you're packed in here with 249 other people. 250 people are here. And we do that. That's part of our Christmas while we sing Silent Night. And then, and then Pastor Steve says that corny thing he says at the end of every year. Kermansville Alliance, you look beautiful in the candlelight. You know, <laughs> That's part of our 
Christmas tradition. I love those traditions. But those traditions are not where the peace comes from. The peace comes from the prince. We read it last week when we read Isaiah 9 in verse 11, or verse 6 rather. It says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prince is the one who gives the peace. On Advent, we often read the angels. When they're talking to the shepherds, they wrap it up with glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men on whom his favor rests. Everything inside us senses this Advent, this arrival of Jesus, is the arrival of peace. And so we sing, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And I got to tell you, if Mary's listening in, she's probably laughing. They weren't there, right? And we sing, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And every mom says, right, right. And yet those songs remain. Everything inside us senses that this advent, this arrival of Jesus is the arrival of peace. The prince brings peace with his advent. And the prince brings peace through his death. You can't have the cradle and forget about the cross. Death. That doesn't sound like a nice thing to talk about at Christmas. But without it, there would be no peace. Your Bibles are open to Romans 5, right? In in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of of the glory of God. How does that work? Where does that come from? Well, just move down to verse six and you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus' death, (laughs) he pays for our peace. He brings us peace. His death makes possible reconciliation between an incredibly self-centered person like me and a perfectly pure and spotless and holy God like him. If your Christmas is only about the baby in the manger, you're only getting part of the story, a beautiful part, an essential part, but it's only part. As Mary knew, this child was born to die. A sword would pierce her soul. And his death is what satisfies justice and brings us peace with God. That's where you find peace in Christ's sacrifice for you. And you find peace in his triumph. Turn over to Isaiah 11. This is, uh, I think, maybe the next to the last passage I have for you. Isaiah 11. The prince brought peace with his advent, with his death, and he brings it with his triumph. Just two chapters after Isaiah refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And by the way, remember, he's writing 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Then in, in verse chapter 11, in verse 1, he starts to talk about Jesus and how in his triumph he brings peace. Listen to what he says, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Okay, so in case you're wondering, who's Jesse? Jesse is King David's father. So King David, king in the Bible, killed Goliath, that guy. 
His dad name, dad's name was Jesse. And when it says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, it's talking about the kingly line of Israel. And then when it says from his roots, a branch will bear fruit, it's talking about Jesus. That's why the NIV translators at least capitalize the word branch. So this is about Jesus. So let's continue reading in verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness a sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near a cobra's den. (laughs) The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all the holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <laughs> you know, someday, I'd like to say to Isaiah, do you think you could have used any more dramatic language to speak of the peace that the prince is going to bring? But I know what Isaiah would say. Well, that's what God told me to write. God breathed those words by his Holy Spirit. And the point is that this prince will reign in triumph, that he will return and deal with Satan and all who do evil, and he will bring lasting peace. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you that that kind of peace can be yours at Advent. You don't have to wait for the end of days to have peace. It's available to you now. But it won't come, it doesn't come, by fleeing conflict or by forcing and insisting that everyone else think the same as you. That is not real peace. And because I feel, because I feel that understanding peace is vitally important to your mental, your emotional, and your spiritual well-being, I'm going to talk to you very frankly. I'm going to talk straight to you as I give you this last 10 minutes of the message. And I want you to consider these words as you prepare your heart for communion. The first thing I want to say to you is for this peace to be yours, you will have to think with humility. You will have to think with a heart of humility that comes from maturity. So here's what I mean by that. Insisting that your life should be conflict-free and that people should agree with you is a sign of immaturity, even a sign of arrogance. It is a mark of someone who just doesn't get out much. (laughs) And it is akin to prejudice, to bigotry, and to narrow-mindedness. Things we generally associate with grumpy old men, but not with mature adults. As I have moved through adulthood and continue to do so, I often look back on my life and realize I suffered a malady that a lot of people suffer. I call it in my own life the arrogance of youth. Some people never get over it. Useful arrogance is what Mark Twain was talking about in my favorite quote by Mark Twain, where he says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. 
And many of our people need travel sorely on those accounts. But honestly, while I think that traveling and seeing and experiencing different cultures can change your perspective like nothing else, a simple open-mindedness to people who think differently than you goes a long way. It goes a long way. If you want peace, you will have to choose to let go of your arrogance before it ingrains you in its foolishness. Second, if you want peace, you will have to view yourself with some brutal honesty. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would, for a minute. I'm going to read from there in just a minute or two. Listen, if through this sermon, you've been sitting there and you've been thinking to yourself, wow, I hope so-and-so is watching online. Wow, so-and-so really needs this. Wow, I know some people that need to hear this sermon. If that's you, you may have overlooked the one you know best who needs it most. That might be you. Can you be honest with yourself about who you are? Can you be honest with your own struggles in the area of peace? Divisiveness is a product of arrogance and self-righteousness. It's thinking, I got my act together, but they don't have their act together. It's toxic and it's dangerous. My friend Bernie Neffley, who often speaks here for me, says, you are the most dangerous to the kingdom of God when you're right. (laughs) There's some truth there. When you think that you're right and everyone else is wrong, that will not bring you peace. There was a very little peace, very little peace surrounding the Lord's Supper in the gathering of Christians at Corinth. Your Bible's open to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Take a look at verse 17 and 18 there. Paul says to them, just imagine somebody wrote this letter to us. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Wow, that's a bold statement. You should just quit getting together as a church because you're messing up so bad. That's what he's saying. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and I, to some extent, I believe it. Then he goes on to talk about how they behave together as a church. When they take communion, it's like a a meal, and the rich people get there early because they don't have to work, and they eat all the food, and they drink all the wine, and they get drunk, literally. So when the poor people come in, there's nothing for them to eat. And it's it's a train wreck in Corinth. That divisiveness has destroyed the ministry there or is on the brink of destroying the ministry there. And Paul says later, 10 verses later, in verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread or drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why a number of you have fallen asleep. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning regarding ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So number two on the PowerPoint there, you will have to view yourself with honesty. The solution to the division in the church at Corinth was to view themselves with honesty. And the solution to your lack of peace with others will be to view yourself, not them, yourself with honesty. Is your heart really that much different than theirs? As you prepare for the Lord's Supper, examine your heart. You may find a solution to your peace problem. For this peace to be yours, you will have to view others with grace. The first time I heard Pastor Nephli, Pastor Bernie say that, 
you're the most dangerous to the kingdom when you're right. I thought, I don't think that's right. Because if I'm right and they're wrong, I mean, literally, if I'm right and they're wrong, how can I be dangerous? <laughs> the way I can be dangerous is I can, I can push that off in a forceful, aggressive, non-relational kind of way. And that's just one way it's dangerous. There will be times when you are right and someone else is wrong. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to write them off? Are you going to say, well, they're just wrong and I'm not hanging out with them? Jesus didn't write you off. He didn't write me off. He loved you. And it cost him. When Jesus is asked, and I say this over and over again, what is the, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God. But Jesus isn't asked what are the first two, and still he gives the second. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a commandment, and it requires grace. Do you know what grace is? It's looking at someone who's doing wrong or has done wrong or just flat is wrong and saying, that's okay. I don't hold that against you. I will still have peace with you. That is what grace is. And we're commanded to do that. If you want to find peace, you're going to have to act with grace. So I tried to tell this joke in the first service and I blew it, which is really surprising because I've told this joke like a hundred times. Some of you have heard it a dozen times. You know the joke. It's a joke about the guy who lives in kind of a low area and there's a flood coming. And you know the joke, right? And, and, and so the, uh, the police go through and they have a thing, a megaphone. They're saying, evacuate. You're going to be flooded. The flood is coming. Evacuate. And he looks out and he says, I'm trusting in the Lord to take care of me on this. And, and then after that, um, you know, the water tends to come up. And so he goes upstairs into the upper floor of his home. The bottom floor is underwater. And a boat comes by. If you guys want to come up, you can come on up, worship team. And a boat comes by. And, and the, the people in the boat say, hey, come on. Come on, hop in the boat. He says, no, 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 I'm waiting for the Lord. I'm waiting for the Lord. And then finally, he has to go up on the roof because that second floor is underwater. And a helicopter drops a ladder. And they say, get the ladder. He says, no, I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. And he drowns. So he stands before the Lord. You know, you know the story, right? He says, Lord, I can't believe you didn't save me. The Lord said, look, I sent the policeman. I sent the boat. I sent the helicopter. What do you want me to do, right? Bad joke, right? But here's the point. On the screen, you're looking right now at three things you can do to get your peace back. And if you don't do them, then what? So as Gail plays the music quietly, give some prayerful consideration to that. And if you find, oh, good night. This really, Pastor Steve, you just really laid it right out there and this has spoken to my heart. Don't wallow in shame and guilt about that. Confess it. You confess it. He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then walk forward. Go and leave your life of sin, Jesus says in John 8, right? Yeah, do that. Say, okay, I can't wait to take communion because I've confessed this. Give some thought, some uh, inward uh, uh, peering into your soul as you examine yourself. Gail?